Discussing from Srimad Bhagavatam, first canto, first chapter, questions by the sages. We discussed partially text nine in the last class. Tattatatandrasayushman babatat adminishchitam pumsam ekantatasreyas tannasangshitum arhasi. In this verse, the sages have, have mentioned that uh, Sutta Goswami, who has appeared on the scene at Naimisharanya, by the arrangement of Malaram, uh, as we know from later in the text of Bhagavatam, they have um, addressed him, they have glorified him, they have asked him a question. This is the first of six such questions that will be answered in the successive chapters. And we discussed the verse with regard to their mentioning the sages, the long life of Sutta Goswami, that he had been blessed with a long life. So he was blessed with Balaram to preside over the thousand-year sacrifice. And, of course, the implication as we brought out was that because the subject of his discourse would be Srimad Bhagavatam, which, as we'll see, is in response to the very nature of the inquiry of the sages. Therefore, the kind of long duration of life mentioned here ultimately speaks about those few, that one, those who who are always speaking about Uttama Shloka. Uttama Shloka means who is praised with transcendental poetry. So it's a name for Krishna, actually. And this type of talk about Krishna, Harikata, Harikatamitam, Tabukatamitam, Tapta Jivanam, Kaviviriditam, Kalma Shapaham, Shabanamangalam, Srimadatatam, Uvi Gurantiye, Buridajanaha. Mahaprabhu Shri Dev liked this verse very much. Tavokatam ritam tapta jivanam. Tavokatam. Tavo your kata amritam. Talks about you. This is a verse from the gopis glorifying Krishna. Tavokata amritam. Talks about you are amritam. Mritam means death. And amritam means deathless, immortality. Amrit also means nectar, so talks about you are the nectar of immortality, etc., etc. The verse is a very nice glorification of the talks about Krishna, the potency of that, the potential of that. Uh, this verse was cited by the uh, great learned Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, who is even to date, as it's noted in the encyclopedia, the greatest logician of India. So he um, was not cited by him, but it was it was cited by him to Raj, the king, Prataparudra of Puri, who wanted to have the association of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but because he was a king and Mahaprabhu was a renunciate, the two symbolize, represent opposite ends of the spectrum, the king being the personification of worldliness and acquisition, and the renunciate 
being the personification of renunciation, detachment, and otherworldliness. So it's hard for the two to come together for the sake of preserving his reputation or position in the eyes of others as a person who was detached and thereby capable of helping others become attached. Shaitanya Dev avoided the king's association because too much association with the king, it would be thought that the renunciate was bought and paid for, became a puppet of the, only of, of the king. So, but at the same time, the king was actually a, a very nice uh, devotee. So at any rate, he was coached by Sarvabhoma and others, and it was advised by Sarvabhoma, when Chaitanya Dev falls into a trance while chanting during the Rathiatra procession, that occurred annually in Puri when the deities are taken out on chariots and taken through the streets and so forth, which symbolically represents Krishna's returning to uh, his intimate devotees in Vrindavan, the gopis in particular. At that time, he'll fall into a trance. Then you go at that time and don't dress like a king, just dress like an ordinary person. Go and sing this song, this Gopi Gita, it's called. This is one of the, one of the verses. A verse that glorifies those people who distribute the Harikata, Tabukatamritam, this talked about you, their nectar, their bring immortality, and so many good qualities about them are mentioned there. And the people then who distribute this, they are doing the best welfare work, the para upakar, the supreme welfare work for human society. So Sutta Gosami it's about to launch into an extended session of Harikata that has been uh, here enshrined in the book and uh, made available to human society for thousands of years now. That is Sriman Bhagavatam. We'll see, as I say, from the inquiries of the sages, how Bhagavatam has to be the response of Sutta Goswami, who was learned and could have talked about anything. And the speaker will talk about subjects relative to the interest of the audience. So the audience has something to do with what will come out. This is a participatory affair. Sri Krishna says in the Gita, Bodhayantas parasparam tushanticharamanticha. Bodhayantas parasparam. Bodh means to enlighten. So mutually enlightening one another. Devotees, they converse amongst themselves. So this question and answering format that characterizes the Bhagavatam, characterizes the lives of the devotees, which can also be described as hearing and chanting. Shravanam kirtanam, which fosters smaranam, internal life, meditation. So Parikshit Marsh is the classical inquirer. Sukadeva is the classical answerer, the classical hearer and chanter. And here Sutta Goswami, the classical chanter and the sages, the the hearers, they're inquiring what they want to hear is being voiced. And they're ready to listen. This combination is bringing down this great Srimad Bhagavatam. As I said, Sutta Goswami could have spoken about anything. It's clear here from the text, from the previous texts, that he was learned in all of the sacred texts, which deal with a whole lot of topics actually. The greater balance of those texts, of course, deals with religious life, how to live in the world and to color your life with a religious tint and to be a pious, morally upright 
person and so forth, to qualify oneself more and more materially in terms of uh, morals, ethics, and so on and so forth. The smaller portion of the, of the sacred text, of course, then is about not religious life, but about spiritual life. And the thought is that, well, first become religious, in other words, so there are so many codes of behavior and so forth that are meant to, as I said the other day, take us away from animality and really make us human, which ultimately means to culture, cultivate, to foster that inquiry about the more that I sense, uh, that we sense we are. And so as one moves away from animality and accepts a life of in which there is an acknowledgement of and a gratitude towards the powers, let's say, that be, the power of the sun, the power of the wind, which were all personified then as gods and goddesses and so forth, and living with gratitude and participating in life rather than trying to conquer life, change the nature of nature, rather to show gratitude and move in a loving, participatory way by which it is thought that the secrets of nature and those powers that we're dependent upon, even for our material functioning, may reveal something about themselves and the nature of life in a bigger the bigger scheme, what we're part of, so to speak. So that's the smaller section then of the text that deals with that, the secret part, the Upanishads, and uh, the greater portion is about the religious life. So he could have talked about any number of things depending upon his audience and the nature of their, their necessity and, and their inquiry and so forth. And we see here, as we'll go on, the nature of their inquiry is such that he has to speak about Bhagavatam. It has to come to this. They want to know something more than the normal religious course. So he's very, very um, qualified. He is blessed, as they say here, with a long life. And they're speaking to him in such a way, as I said, that he will speak Harikata and move from religious orientation to immortality to the nature of the self and, and beyond. And so they ask him here, they first say, well, you're Ayushman. Ayushman, you have, you're blessed with a long life. And this is, as they say, ultimately what it means. Those who are preoccupied with Harikata, they will live forever. This is not a subject that will end. Implication is what? That we can talk about things only to a certain extent because all things, all manifestations material manifestations, that's what I mean by things, they will be here today and gone tomorrow, so you can't talk about them forever. Maybe as long as you can remember them, but memory will <laughs> fade in time and their importance as well. So you cannot talk about those things forever. In fact, preoccupation with such and talking about them is like a frog croaking in the night. What happens? The frog sings in the night. He thinks he's very beautiful. And this, then, that's how the snake knows where the frog is. This is how nature works. And he swallows up the frog. So our talking only about material things is only inviting the snake of death, so to speak. So this kind of kata, this kind of talk, this is not going to bring immortality. 
because the subjects, the things that we talk about, themselves are dead. They are be here today, perhaps, and gone tomorrow. Indeed, they transform right before our eyes. We bought it, we thought it was one thing, it turned into something else. It just turned into a debt, and a botheration, and, and, and so forth, for example. So, the object is different here. It's Brahman, the great consciousness, and personified, and condensed Brahman. This is the idea of Krishna. Brahman condensed. That takes a shape, then, that can be taken advantage of, and interacted with, and so forth, in intimacy. The great Brahman we may be one with in quality, but there's not a lot of affection there. In the form of Krishna, then, this Brahman takes on a quality of affection, and therefore, by this, we determine Krishna is the controlling, ultimate controlling agency, because affection and love rule over uh, more comprehensively than anything else. And, of course, he asked, look small, in order for that to happen. Look ordinary, look two-handed, and otherwise how that intimacy will take place, as I've said before. Without the infinite, taking a finite-like, in appearance, form, how close can we, the finite, get to the infinite? In other words, if it remains in an infinite state of expression, we'll think, oh my God, I'm before the infinite, and we'll be kind of repelled in a sense. Can it get close? So in order for there to be intimacy between the finite and the infinite, the infinite has to take on a finite-like appearance. This is called aprakrita. looks ordinary, but it's not. And so the scriptures labor hard to explain Krishna is not what he appears to be to the eye at first and so forth. And Bhagavatam does a wonderful job of this, of walking a tightrope, if you will, poetically between the Aishwarya, the godhood, the transcendental greatness and uh, that fosters awe and reverence of Krishna and the sweetness of Krishna by which he's made accessible to us and available in terms of intimacy and love. So a great work and a qualified person is required to render it, to, to make it uh, manifest. And Sutta Goswami is such a person, blessed with a long life, tatra tatra andasayushman, and babatadyadvinishchitam. The sages ask from him that what? Tatra tatra. It means you're versed in all these sacred texts, as again I said, you could have spoken about anything, but please speak to us in easily understandable terms. It means they know he has realization. Pumsam ekantatashreyas. That which for Pumsam, for human society, is the shreyas, the best possible thing. And speak about it, ekantata, means one, it means absolute, it means exclusive, it means... Here, speak about all this knowledge that you're well acquainted with from the sacred text, having been educated by Vyas himself, having illustrated that you have experience of the subject that you're speaking about and are so qualified thereby. You're sinless, you're Brahmanishtam, fixed in Brahman, and Srotriyam, well-versed in all the texts in terms of your ability to tread the path of bhakti, which is eternal. It's an eternal treading of the path. You won't find this idea that's often out and about applies more anywhere than it does to bhakti. The idea that the path 
is the goal. You might have heard it. The journey is the destination. This is really brought out in bhakti because the journey never ends. Prem, which as we'll see here, is the, is the answer to the question that's raised here and the second question that comes up two verses later, the first two questions. Prem, love of God, the full face of bhakti, prem bhakti. Its nature is that it's full. Radha's love, which exemplifies prem like no other, is full, but always increasing. That doesn't fit so well between the ears, but that's, that's the nature of the thing. It's full, but always increasing. So there's much to be said about, again, this topic, Krishna. He's not here today and gone tomorrow. He himself is trying to figure himself out. This is our idea here. Krishna himself is trying to understand the depth of the nectar that he personifies. So, big topic. Speak about it in a thoughtful way. Make this topic easily. Explain it. A very, uh, you have the capacity to explain a very deep topic here, very in easy, understandable terms. It means according to time and circumstance. This will be brought out in the next verse. But here, ekantata, again, it's a vast body of literature that you're acquainted with. Put it all together for us into one, like, what's the bottom line? That's what they want. You know, there's all these texts out there. They're talking about so many different things it seems, is there one real underlying essential message in the whole thing? Here we understand from their question here, they want ekantata. They want this kind of, this is what they want from him, this is what they want to hear from him. We understand the idea that as Guru Prana states, the Bhagavad is, hmm, is that verse... I always remember the second line. I always forget the first line, which is the one that's important tonight. It says that the Bhagavatam is the natural commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. Arto yam Brahma Sutranam. Arto yam Brahma Sutranam. The Brahma Sutras, the Artha, the real meaning of that, the essential meaning of the Sutras. And what are the Sutras? As we've said before, the sutras of Vyasa are the first attempt in human society at theology. And what is theology? Theology is philosophizing about the nature of revelation. What it's saying. What is its implication? There is an idea, as I say, in human society that the greater whole speaks to us. Not everybody entertains that idea, but uh, I think everybody really does entertain that idea, but they try to do away with it sometimes because the message of the whole to the part is one that doesn't always fit very well with the way in which the part would like to conduct itself, having been uh, become addicted by time to outward movement, to interacting with things, to acquisition, and so forth and so on. So... Artoyam Brahma Sutranam. The Brahma Sutra is the first attempt to do all of this, to take all these sounds of the Upanishads, which is the, the earliest form of revelation. And it's a different form, as I said, of revelation than we find in the Western form of revelation, which is more of a his, thought, thought anyway, to be a historical event. God sent his son. It's a historical fact. They, they try to prove that and so forth. Christianity is very much bent on, on this idea that it's a, it happened. It's a real fact. 
God's son came and, and so forth. And can you prove that Krishna actually came? You know, we don't have to. The nature of the subject here in the Bhagavatam, that's enough for us. <laughs> Who's ever put this together? This is, this, this is talking about something that is revealed. Now, they don't know who the author is. We say, of course, the tradition says Vyasa was the author of the, of all the Vedas, the editor of all these sounds, putting them together in a literary form and so forth. The Bhagavatam was his mature final contribution. And the scholars in academia would want, want to say, well, it looks like these books were written at different times. They couldn't have been written by one person. You know, the different Sanskrit at different times, and they have ways of analyzing and so forth. But, you know, that they never, they never come up with an author mm-hmm. <laughs> either. Therefore, even academia, if you will, makes the same statement that we do. The author of the Vedas is Apurusheya. <laughs> Apurusheya means not human, not authored by the humans. You can't find a, a, they can't find any human who wrote it. They still think some human did, but they haven't figured out who he was yet, and they never will. So in a, in a kind of a humorous way, in a charming way, we can say, they also agree with us. It's Aparusheya. Aparusheya means it's revealed. The greater whole is reaching out, expressing itself to itself, if you will, in human form. The one becomes many as fire manifests sparks. And we are the sparks and the fire speaking to us. Come back in the, in the, in the flame, in the light, come to the light. We've fallen, we've fallen on the, in, in such a way as a spark of the fire, it appears like we may go out. We won't, but for all intents and purposes, we may go out. In terms of our potential as a soul, uh, soul's potential is something like the difference between ice and water. Ice is only water, but in the condition of ice, it can only cool water, practically. And what can you do with water? So many things. So what is the potential of the self? It's a particle of light. Practically, it's, it can't go out, but it's become so covered by its identification with the dead, with the things that don't endure, that it looks like it won't endure. It starts to think it doesn't endure. It starts to philosophize it doesn't endure. <laughs> this is the darkness, darkest of the dark, actually. Such philosophizing is more dark in the soul in, a, in an amoeba form. It's the darkest of the dark, using the reasoning only for this purpose, to convince oneself and others that we don't live, ultimately. So here, that all those sounds then that were taken by Vyas and systematically organized, he tried to show the concordance of them, how they're tattu samanvayat, what they all mean how they all show, are showing one essential message. The whole is speaking to us, not in a splayed-out way, but in And so nice, because it comes this is one way, but it, but it can be taken in different ways according to the different necessities in human society, is the idea. So these sages, they want this. And this, of course, then, must be Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam is artoyam brahmasutranam. This Brahma Sutra, the first attempt in human society at theology to organize revelation that it may be intelligible to the common person and thus be one such that one can assimilate that and proceed along the lines of the directive 
of revelation, that we may realize our highest prospect. That attempt by Vyas in the sutras was done in shorthand, like notes. And the artha, the meaning of those notes, if you will, that different people have commented upon over the centuries to make sense out of the notes of Vyas. Here the statement is, Srimad Bhagavatam is the longhand commentary on those notes by the author of the notes. It begins, Janmadhyasyataha, Satyam Param Dimahi. The sutras begin with a statement, Atato Brahmajignasu. Bhagavatam begins, Satyam Param Dimahi. Atato Brahmajignasu means now is the time to inquire about Brahman about the ultimate uh, consciousness that you are of the nature of. Now is the time to inquire about that. And Bhagavatam starts out, Satyam Param Dhimahi. It says, this is how you inquire about Brahman. Dhimahi. How do you inquire about Brahman? Dhimahi means by meditation. It's an inward inquiry. It's not about gathering information. We heard Sridhar say the other day, I chanted the Gayatri 432 times a day for a number of days with the premise that it was a living thing without studying the meaning of the words even to understand it intellectually, which is a valuable thing and conceptually orient oneself to what it potentially means as far as you can think about it anyway, as far as you could talk about it anyway, even though it itself reaches beyond the limits of speech beyond the limits of thought. So he, anyway, he approached it just, well, it's, it's a limit. it'll speak to me. It will speak to me about the nature of itself such that I will be compelled to speak about it even though I know words will never do justice. It's a living thing. So, dimahi, the way to inquire about Brahman is not the way we inquire about everything else. We go to school to get knowledge, we inquire from the teachers to collect some information which we can use then for our own purposes. No, Brahman has a purpose of its own. As I said, has his own agenda and we're on it. We can't make it our agenda. We're on it. We find, I'm on its agenda. I have to move in a different way. So Dimahi is, this is, this is the opposite way in which people are proceeding in life. By outreach they are proceeding rather than by by ingress, looking within, dimahi. It's a, it's a whole different. It's 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 an attempt to rise above nature. A subtle attempt, rather than a crude and gross attempt by conquering it and through technology and so forth, rise above it while honoring it and understanding it, and in an essential sense, not in all of its details necessarily. So and then. Within the same verse, the first verse of the Bhagavatam, we find what? Atato Brahmajuganasu Janmadi Asyataha. This is the second sutra of the of the Vedanta Sutras, the Brahma Sutras. Janmadi Asyataha. This is how Bhagavatam begins also. Janmadi Asyataha. So we can see these examples are given and there are many more. How the Bhagavatam is a natural commentary on Vedanta Sutra by the author of the sutras himself. I know of it. Gaudiya Acharya, who's written a book that shows every sutra of the Vedanta, of Vyas, and corresponding verses of the Bhagavatam.
demonstrating this point of the Garuda Purana, Artoyam Brahma Sutranam. So we can understand here by this one word, Ekantaha, Ekantaha, the nature of their inquiry from Sutta is such that he, he has to speak about the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam will come from this kind of inquiry. We want that singular and ultimate message of revelation, what it says in terms of its furthest reach, what it really ultimately, for one who really wants to listen, what does Bhagavatam say? Nastaprayeshu, abhadreshu, nityam Bhagavata sevaya. Pay close attention, really interested in this subject matter. This is the business of the teacher, at any rate, also in any field, to create an interest in learning. And then you can go and learn. <laughs> so to create an interest in the subject matter, to awaken an interest, a keen interest. They were keenly interested. That's what this word ekantata means. They want to know, cut to the chase here. What's the bottom line? You have learned from Vyas everything there is to learn. Vyasa's mind is said to be like the sky in which all knowledge is is found. Yeah, the Veda is like a tree from which all knowledge is... What's the essence of that? This is what they're asking. What's the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic knowledge? Can you please... You're blessed with a long life. You study the Tatra Tatra in all ways, this scripture. And you know its essential meaning, right? They say, Babatadadvinishchitam Explain it in readily understandable terms. This, this means, this is what Bhagavatam is, you see? It's the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic knowledge. It's nigama kalputorur galitam phalam. Nigama, nigama means the Veda. That means this vast body of revelation. Nigama kalputorur. And this, this is the third verse of the Bhagavatam, the preface, uh, in, the, in the preface. It says, Nigambakalpataro, this Vedic uh, knowledge, this revelation is like a tree. Not an ordinary tree. But think of a tree first. Now, a tree is very generous. A fruit tree provides shade. It can provide warmth in the winter. It can take us out of the rain. provides food. Trees are characterized in the revelation as very uh, generous, tolerant, and compassionate examples we are to learn from. Mahaprabhu said, We should be more humble than the grass. When you step on it, it doesn't complain. It just bends. And you should be tolerant like the tree. That even when you chop it, it provides you shade in the, from the sun to do so. And fruit to eat when you need a lunch break. Then if it rains, it's an umbrella. We should be like this, he said. Vedas are compared to a tree. That's generous in itself. But this tree, taro, means tree kalputaro. Nigama kalputaro. It's a tree from which all desires can be fulfilled. For to fulfill any desire, we need some knowledge by which then we can, our actions will be informed that we may accomplish a task, fulfill a desire. So, the Veda, this revelation has been compared to a tree of desire that you can just pick a fruit and you can get all the knowledge you need to fulfill any desire. We'll have to talk about that. There aren't that many desires, really. 
There's only a few, but it looks like there are many. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that as we go on. But this tree, this Bhagavatam, they said, this Bhagavatam is of the tree, the desire tree of Vedic knowledge, of revelation. It is the Galitam Phalam. Phalam means fruit, and Galitam means the fallen fruit. Galitam Phalam. What fruit falls? The ripe fruit. This is what they're asking for, that you explain it in easily understandable terms. The Veda is a big tree of knowledge, so many branches. And if you want to get a certain kind of knowledge, you may have to climb up on one branch and reach out and so forth. But readily, easily understandable terms, Galitam Falam, the fallen fruit, it just comes down. And how does it come down? Sukadev Goswami has taken it from Vyas, who took it from Narada, and so from Brahma, from Krishna. So it's handed down, it's coming down, handed down, so that it doesn't, it doesn't break, it's not bruised. Hmm? This is, means, they're saying, you have the power to explain things in easily understandable terms. It means, we want to hear, this is giving rise to the Bhagavatam. This is what it is. What they're asking for here is being described. It's what's, what the Bhagavatam has described itself to be in the second verse. We'll come to that here in the third verse, as I'm describing. The ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic knowledge. It was tasted by Sukadeva and became that much more sweet and handed down. And Pibhata Bhagavatam, Rasam Alayam, you should drink it. Pibhata Bhagavatam, Rasam Alayam. Alayam means... Liberation, it means it's beyond mukti. It is prem. And alaya means, laya means to pass out. It says, drink this fruit. Take it and drink the fruit, the juice of the fruit, rasam, and pass out. Pibhata Bhagavatam, rasam alayam. Muhur. And what do you do after you wake up? Muhur. Again, drink it again. And pass out again. This is the Harikata. Pibhata Bhagavatam Rasam Alayam Uroho Rasika Bhuvi Bhavaka. This is for crazy people, for mad people. You are mad. You can, this is what we want. That's the bottom line, what it's ultimately about, all this revealed text. And we want it explained just in readily understandable, easily understandable terms. You can see they're asking for, he has to now speak Bhagavatam, which he heard from Sukadev in the assembly when Sukadev spoke to the king. So you're blessed with a long life. You have the capacity to explain things in easily understandable terms, these complex subjects. We want to hear the essence of those subjects in such easily understandable terms. So still we have to speak hear about Shreyas, the last word here, which we'll do tomorrow night. So, any question? <laughs> what is that book that you were talking about that shows the, how the sutras are present in the Bhagavatam? I don't know the name of the book, but it was uh, compiled by a charger named Haridas Shastri. He's a scholar in Vrindavan and a, and, uh, and a member of the 
the Paribar, the lineage of Gadadhar Pandit. Some Western people have come under his uh, tutelage as well. But I, uh, I think I have it on in an electric format or something. Maybe I'll send it to you. You're interested, right? Yeah. If the, the sages gathered for a thousand-year sacrifice for you know, for material well-being, was it then Sutta's arrival that caused them to switch gears and, and begin asking these right. powerful questions? Right. If, right. They gathered for one thing, and Baladev changed the equation by establishing Sutta Goswami, whose position was very different from that of Ramaharshan, who had previously been sitting on the seat of esteem and uh, addressing the, the sages about different topics, lesser topics. So we owe a debt to Balaram, speaking in the Bhagavatam. It's coming from him, just like the Chaitanya Charitamrita is coming, like the Chaitanya Bhagavatam coming from him. So the very presence of Sutta Goswami is awakening in them some a new level of interest and they're asking about it and giving rise then and the opportunity to speak the Bhagavatam. It's so nice. It's such a nice verse. Another question? Yes. Rama. Uh, I have a couple of questions that may stir things up a bit here. Uh, you quoted this verse from the Guru Purana. Yeah. And uh, it refers to the Bhagavatam. But according to the Bhagavatam, the book was written, it was the final work of Vyas, and uh, it uh, you know, summarized everything. So if the Garuda Purana was written before the Bhagavatam, how is it that the Garuda Purana is, is glorifying the Bhagavatam that hasn't even been written yet? There's a couple of ways to answer that. One way is that there were the Bhagavatam was written, it's called the Bhagavat Purana. Essential Bhagavatam was written. Then Vyas kind of re-edited the Srimad Bhagavatam. And so as the Bhagavat Purana, we can say it served as a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. But as Srimad Bhagavatam, it was written in more easily accessible and um, understandable terms. So Bhagavat Purana, as Jiva Goswami has explained and demonstrated, uh, with evidence was already written and Vyas was still feeling despondent and then he turned the Bhagavad Purana into the Srimad Bhagavatam if you will. Now we're talking about something that's being compiled at different times and in an ongoing way when we speak about the Bhagavatam. Revelation is not something that's set in stone, it's, a, it's, it's really a discussion between the Godhead and human society that causes it to unfold and continue to manifest and so forth. So, originally the Bhagavatam is also, and we'll hear, find here in the text, Shruti Sarva may come, right? It's the essence of the Shruti. It's a Smriti, the means which is having heard the revelation, meditated upon it, upon it and, and then spoken about it. It's Smriti, but it's also Shruti because it was originally spoken by Krishna in four verses to Brahma. So, in that way, it was already there when Garuda Purana was written. <laughs> I've never heard that that, that book. Yeah, it's mentioned, explained in Tattva. Explained in Tattva Sandarbha of Jiva Goswami. And he's labored to make that point for people like you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my second question is this is that. 
you said in the beginning of the class that, uh, you know, you described this more, Mahaprabhu advented in order to taste Radharani's love to try to understand or experience Radha's love for himself. But this doesn't make any sense to me because he, uh, God knows everything and God is, you know, Radharani is Krishna and Krishna is Radharani and the two are one in some sense. Isn't this just a way of trying to explain the Leela, the play of Mahaprabhu in a charming way? Because how is it that God needs to advent in a particular way to find out something about himself? Well, yeah, uh, I think that's a unique quality of the Gaudiya um, contribution to the world of theology and uh, spiritual experience. It posits the idea that while all religions point to God as the most worshipable object, we point to the most worshipable object of God. It's the whole concept of the Shakti Tattva and uh, the Sachintya Beda Beda, of uh, Shakti and Shaktiman and the oneness and the difference between the two that really explains the phenomenon, if you will, of Krishna, where you have the all-knowing, absolute not knowing because of the influence of love, of bhakti. So it posits the power, if you will, of bhakti, of love, such that it transcends in a sense, the power of God. Now, it depends how you want to talk about it, because you want to talk about it from a philosophical point of view or a theological point of view. You want to talk about it from a philosophical point of view, then Radha and Krishna become one, and it becomes less charming. And that's important to talk about it like that also. Then talk about it from a theological point of view or an abed point of view difference. So this is the core of the philosophy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the absolute is one, and different, and conceivably at the same time. So when you talk about it philosophically, you're talking about the abed. There's no difference. Radha and Krishna one. What's to be known? That's the side of it. Then you talk about the bed from a religious or a theological point of view. Then it becomes alive, and there becomes a difference, and there becomes an interaction, and, and so forth. So both are valid kind of perspectives. We say Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says that the God that is one, different at the same time. So he's one with Radha, but different. We tend to emphasize the difference because it is more, it brings out the charming aspect of the absolute. You can kind of try to do away with it and make it less charming, but what would be the point? The idea that still stands philosophically, I think that bhakti has the power to arrest Krishna. This is mentioned in the Bhagavatam, in the second verse, Dharma Purjitakaita Bhutra Paramonin Matsuranam Satam Vedyam Vasavam Atravastu Sivanam Tarpatron Mulanam Srimad Bhagavate Mahamune Krite Kimvapara Rishvara Sadyo Hriday Avarudya Tetra. The topic, as we'll see, of Bhakti, of the Bhagavatam is Bhakti and Prem Bhakti, ultimately. And it says in the second verse, which says what the book is about, it has the power to arrest Krishna to conquer Krishna. So we're making a point there that philosophically that the bhakti, love of Krishna, that's non-different from Krishna, the teacher and the student are non-different. You can't have the teacher without the student in that sense. You can't have the student without the teacher. 
So there's no meaning to the teacher without the student. There's no meaning to the student without the teacher. So there's, well, they're one. But in a dynamic sense, they're one. So this, <laughs> the idea is this is the nature of, of reality. And in that oneness, we find that bhakti has the power to arrest, to conquer, to delude. The shakti has the power to delude the shakti man. But the delusion, if you will, it's, you know, it's, we're limited by words. It's more charming, more enlightening. The idea is, what's it all about? It's about rasa. That's what life's about. It's about rasa. What makes life interesting is the aesthetic experience of life. If a guy hits a home run, you know, it's the bottom of the ninth, it's the seventh game of the World Series, and the bases are loaded, and they're down by three, and there's two outs, and he's got three balls and three strikes, and that's it, you know. So he hits the home run, and and nobody cares, like, how fast was the ball going? At what speed did the bat hit? At what point? What was the trajectory? And get out all the math and describe it like that. It's the emotional experience of it that makes the thing worth going to. And what's and what's the meaning to all that? <laughs> look at it the way you want to look. Take the meaning. Let's get to the meaning here. It's just a ball. <laughs> right? Made out of some leather, stitched together with something inside. It's just a piece of wood, right? The two are meeting. You know, what's the big deal? <laughs> You're making something out of nothing. And that's what we do, I mean, in, in life. Because there's an emotional, like, potential reality. So the Bhagavatam says, hey, you know, you want to look for meaning? This is the meaning. The meaning we make out of it, so to speak. The emotional response we have to the thing. That's the real meaning. That's what makes the thing, the world, you know, go round. And this is what Bhagwan is ultimately about. So that delusion, if you will, that it, occurs as a result of the influence of bhakti where Krishna loses himself and and forgets that he's God for the sake of intimate dealing, this is more meaningful, ultimately. We say that bewilderment that these people are confused, they're jumping around, all they did is kick a pig's skin through a, you know two poles, you know, and they're going crazy. That you know so it's <laughs> but it's the more, it's the it's the real, you know, it's the feeling of the thing. So this is the message of Bhagavad Rasa is what it's about. So the thing that you want to kind of do away with, the charm, the idea, so is, um, is the thing that the teaching emphasizes. It says, it's the more, not the less. Does that help? Yeah, it means that um, <laughs> love doesn't make any sense. Right, that's what it means. That's what it means, right. And that's good. Hmm. <laughs> Because if it can just make sense out of everything, then it becomes boring, right? You figured it all out. The point is you can't figure it all out. To make sense out of it means you want to arrest the thing, and it doesn't lend itself to being arrested in the fist of our mind. And that's good news. So, yeah, that's that's the idea. So, all right, to the late. We'll stop there. Grantaras Srimad Bhagavatam Gidai. Ud Premanandi.